Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I am the director of the Global Summitry Project. It's a pleasure today to be back in the virtual studio with my good uh, colleague, uh, Colin Bradford. Just for everyone's uh, knowledge, the website, globalsummitryproject.com, holds all of the research activities of the uh, project, Global Summitry Project, and it is a, uh, you can see there, uh, we, we hold our uh, video interviews are held there, our uh, podcast interviews, of course, are there as well, all three series, the Shaking the Global Order series, the Now series, and the Summit Dialogue series, and we also hold there the um, uh, e-journal, Global Summitry, and uh, you know we have been working on a new um, special issue on strengthening the G20 uh, by strengthening um, the um, sustainable development goals. It's my real pleasure to welcome back into the virtual studio my good colleague, uh, Colin Bradford, uh, Colin, uh, Colin has recently voiced some concerns about the Indonesian G20 summit, and we wanted to review, talk to him about his concerns and where the G20 goes uh, from here. Um, I um, uh, have always appreciated Colin's long-standing effort uh, to both advocate for the G20. Uh, well before its creation as a leader summit, and also his expertise on the issue of global summitry, and in particular the G20. Um, in 2004, Colin was the first to push for transforming the G8 at a leader's level to the G20 at a leader's level. Um, he uh, became a leading convener of conferences, workshops, and seminars uh, on um, in matters concerning global summitry. Uh, Colin, by the way, continues to be the lead co-chair of the CWD, the China West Dialogue, and also the co-chair of the V20, uh, the Vision 20, an unofficial engagement group of uh, the global of the G20 itself. Colin has uh, participated in all the recent Global Solutions Summit. These uh, emanate out of Berlin, and he's been named a GSS Global Fellow. Currently, and for some time now, Colin has been a non-resident senior fellow at, uh, uh, of the Global Economy and Development Program at, at Brookings Institution. So, uh, let's welcome in uh, Colin, to examine uh, the threats to the uh, leadership and roles of the G7 and the G20. So, welcome, Colin, back to the virtual studio. So good to have you with us today. Thank you, Alan. Good to be here. Yes. Okay, so... Some experts and reporters barely acknowledge uh, the 
won the G20 summit in Indonesia, but basically G20 summits, right? And you spent many years following and analyzing the G20 process. Indeed, uh, you called for a leaders G20 uh, summit well before others had done so and before it actually was created in 2008 with the global financial crisis. So why do you believe that these folks who kind of ignore the G20 uh, and barely acknowledge its existence are wrong? What is it about the G20 that's important, Colin? Well, I think precisely in this excruciating moment, if I can call it that, uh, that we're in of the overlay of war uh, with Russia and uh, highly intense confrontational relationship between the US and China that you this in this moment it would be impossible to create the G20 and yet in this particular moment the G20 is the ideal platform and perhaps the only platform in which geopolitical issues can be dealt with by the major powers and the great powers and the middle powers who are present there mm-hmm. in a way, along with the global governance issues, which are the sort of systemic challenges like climate change that the world faces. So to me, what they failed to see all along, the critics of the G20, was the fact that it wasn't just a summit process in which you expect fireworks and and splashy headlines and and you know exhibits of of bravado it's it's rather the the week to week month to month work that goes on among and between g20 officials from a variety of ministries um throughout the year on major issues mm-hmm. and uh i think that what they don't understand is the degree to which uh, there's a culture now of acceptance of a this is a platform which is importantly especially in this moment uh neutral with respect to values with respect to regime type mm-hmm. and so you have their countries such as saudi arabia for example which engages in renegade um behaviors to put it mildly and uh isn't a democracy and yet is a significant weight in the global system especially obviously with regard to energy so and that's you know that's not the only one i mean there are a number of countries there that don't fit neatly into the western paradigm of a market-driven democracy or democracy-driven market (laughs) i think it works both ways and that's part of the problem yeah and so, so you have this platform that is there, which is a way in which the regime type and values issues are, in essence, put to one side. And big systemic issues like climate change and health and food security and global debt are dealt with, along with now for the very first time, the highest geopolitical uh, tensions and issues are being going to be dealt with as well. So we need the G20 in this moment like never before, and it wouldn't be there at the strength and at the multi-layered foundational level that it exists in 
if it hadn't been for this history over since 2008, when the, when the finance ministry G20 uh, transited into a leader summit in addition. Hmm. So it's vital. Okay. So, so let's, let's talk a bit more about this interaction of geopolitics and, and global governance. First of all, there seems to be some uncertainty with the um, Indonesian summit coming up on uh, November 15th and 16th as to exactly who's going to show up. And, uh, you know, questions have revolved around, you know, the key leaders, uh, Xi Jinping from China, Putin from Russia, Biden, of course, from the United States. We know Biden is scheduled to come. Uh, what's the situation with the with the others? Well, as far as I know, and I've seen nothing to the contrary, Xi Jinping will also be there. Right. And okay. as far as I know, now that Putin is expected not to be there, it will be especially easy for Zelensky uh, Zelensky to be there virtually. Mm-hmm. Virtually. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Right. And so the important thing is that the news in the last few days has been that Putin will not go, which frankly doesn't surprise me. I didn't think he would go in the first place for a variety of reasons. Um, but what this does is if it turns out this way, uh, which I think it's destined to do now, um, is that this, from a, the point of view of the China-West dialogue, which you and I co-chair, this is an ideal setup because the the significant energy and focus in terms of geopolitics is between, well, be between China and the U.S., between U.S. and China, between Xi Jinping and Biden, between Biden and Xi Jinping. Mm-hmm. And Putin is, in a certain sense, sitting in Moscow in front of his screen or doing something else. <laughs> And is sort of out of the way. And okay. that is a huge thing because it takes the, the real heat and tension out of the geopolitical uh, room because war is, you know, Russia's at war with Europe and the and and with with, with the Ukraine. And and it's a it's a nasty, dirty, awful, uncivilized war. And with Putin in the room, it's very difficult to stay in the room. And with mm-hmm. him not even present. It, it not only takes that heat away, but it also enables, I think, Xi and Biden to be the focal point. And I think they should capitalize on it and, and not only have a telephone conversation before, but I think they should meet there. And I think they should be very careful about how they choreograph it. And I, should, I think they should think about some things that they might do together, either in private or in public. I don't really care. Um, but they then it's it's for them and their teams to decide, right? But to gesture towards a sort of re-engagement um, between the two, Thomas Friedman said at Brookings recently that the the um, two country one system uh, idea applies to the U.S. and China, not just to China. And I thought that was a brilliant and even humorous, but brilliant insight. And I just don't think the U.S. and China can afford to turn their backs on each other, much less duel with each other frontally if they're facing each other. I think they have to 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 deal with each other. Okay. And um, for the sake of the future of the globe and for the sake of our our two countries. And so the, to me, this particular turn of circumstances with Putin not going, Zelensky never was going to go, but he, he wouldn't go virtually if, if, if Putin was there potentially. So this is an ideal setup for the China-West dialogue's interest in 
in mediating um, and transforming the confrontational narratives into a um, more uh, pluralistic and professional relationship between the U.S. and China. I, I should point out, by the way, because it was just uh, posted, that there is now a statement by the China West Dialogue for G20 Summit in Indonesia. It's been posted at the Global Solutions Initiatives website, so people can can go over there and take a look at uh, what uh, the CWD is thinking, but maybe you can give the audience at least a top line kind of statement as to uh, uh, what was what was said by uh, by the CWD. Well, I think we, you and I and nine others founded this in April of 2019 mm-hmm. as a, a a group of Europeans, Chinese Americans, and others who. Um, would deal with um, the China-U.S. relationship in a uh, pluralistic fashion. We we modeled that in the composition of the group that we formed then, and we've modeled it since in 25 sessions over two and a half years, um, in which over 50 people have participated from a dozen countries. And the basic thesis, as you well know better than anybody else, is that the that that the problem with the U.S.-China relationship is precisely that it is a bilateral, bipolar, and binary relationship in which tensions tend to intensify and escalate. And that our thesis is that for a variety of reasons, diversity is your is your friend. Pluralism is a powerful dynamic that could replace this binary relationship and complexity of the issues that you engage in can professionalize what otherwise might be a polemical uh, exchange between the two countries. So embedding the U.S.-China relationship in a group like the G20 of major powers from a variety of different perspectives and countries and regimes is precisely what we think creates a dynamic, a political dynamic that, that makes a very complex force field in which China, each player has more maneuvering room. Each player has more autonomy because of the complexity. There's more policy space. There are more vectors and valences and, and, uh, and dimensions to the relationship so that people can find space to get done their priorities within it. And, um, I think, and so we conveyed that message in this, uh, paper, which has been signed by three Americans, three Europeans, two Chinese, and four other people, including yourself, and, uh, and, and from Canada, and, and uh, our friend, fr- friends from Korea and Chile, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and New Zealand. So what we've managed to do is to put together a group which models this sort of pluralistic relationship and generated an alternative framework for the U.S.-China relationship, which actually we've proven works. Because in all of the 25 sessions we've had, we've had Chinese with us, among us, as part of us, and leading us, leading as much as any of the rest of us lead the direction in which we've taken. And the Chinese are, are very supportive of this effort. And I think that's a significant um, advantage to the, this group and, a, and, a, and, a, and proof, in a certain sense, that this can be done. 
you know, we've had, we've never had, and we've discussed human rights, we've discussed democracy versus autocracy. We've never had a situation in which the Chinese have said, there's never been any anger. There's been very little, there's been an energetic exchange and differences of views, for sure. That's what we actually thrive on. But there's never been any anger or any tension or anybody turning around and saying, I'm walking out of the room. Ni, ni mucho menos, as we would say in Spanish. There, there's no, never even gotten close to that point where anybody feels the, the, the hostility, any hostility. It's been a, it's been a substantive, professional, um, and I would say concerned exchange, not only on the part of uh, those of us from the West, but on the part of the Chinese. The, the Chinese really... The three Chinese that have been most directly involved in this, and there have been other Chinese as well, very strongly want this to come out. And so I think that's emblematic of what is possible in the relationship that is not very visible in Washington, D.C., and not very visible around the world. It's very easy to see the obvious and real competitive dynamics between the U.S. and China, and they are real, and they are serious, and nobody's sort of trying to brush them aside and mm -hmm. sort of be take a dreamlike approach. So they're real, they're still there, but it's still possible to talk and discuss and negotiate and mediate between us because they are professional people too, and concerned people in China. Okay. Um, so you've now kind of given us some insight into you, the notions of diversity of the G20 and your um, uh, identification of pluralism of power. But let me also note that you've uh, also pointed to the structure and process of the G20. As you wrote, in the G20, the professional engagement of Sherpas, ministers, senior officials, throughout the year on complex policy issues encourages give and uh, get interactions. So, uh, you know, let me point out, too, that India, who is about to take over the hosting of the G20, um, has identified that they are likely to hold over 200 meetings of various um, uh, form uh, ministers, working party, various other task forces and so forth. So how does this advance uh, meeting the challenge of, of global governance uh, through the G20? Well, I think that's precisely it. That's, as I said at the outset, I think yeah. what is not as widely seen, I hadn't heard this, the point that the Indians are going to have 200 meetings. And that's, that's, a, that's a lot. But it's, but it it makes it clear to those who are listening to this that, and aren't aware of it, is that um, the G20 isn't just two days a year, mm -hmm. where leaders get together. In fact, that's in some ways the least of it. Um, and so, what is happening is governance um, in these other fora that we're talking about, both when it involves officials and when it involves engagement groups like the think tank twenty, the Business 20, the Labor 20, the Youth 20, the M, the Women 20, the Science 20. Mm -hmm. um, there, there are, uh, there are engagement groups also. So I think if you added up all the task force meetings within those groups, and then the Global Solutions Summit is a, is a global civil society 
Global Citizens Forum, which is a form of governance, I think. I've said so in sessions there more than for several years now that this is a form of governance. As you add all this up, and there's a lot of governance going on. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of interaction across professional um, domains and within professional da- domains among countries that don't always agree on things. Mm-hmm. And and you're able to deepen the uh, the common understanding of what the the problem the challenges are and what the issues are and and what some of the solutions might be. And so, to me, this is what it's all about. Is um, I think the world without the G20 in this moment would be really adrift. The United Nations is a great organization; it's a wonderful thing, but it is 194 countries in New York, and it's 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 its own world in a certain way. It's always seemed to me in my professional lifetime, mm-hmm. it's an important institution, but it can't do what's being done here because there is a finite number of players in the room, and a finite number of players that can actually decide things because of their size and scale. And it's a permeable structure. It's a porous structure so that smaller countries and even individuals and institutions, if you're determined to get an idea in front of the G20, I guarantee you that you can get it there. And the fact that it seems to be a club of the big boys is the way it looks, but is not the way it operates. It's Mm -hmm. a very porous structure, as you and I know, because we've attended tons of meetings in which the G20 has been the epicenter of what everybody's concern has been, and ideas flow by the dozens, and not all of them make it to the top, but they make it into the arena, they get consideration, and people often act on them. So to me, this is this is precisely what it's about, is, is globalizing, professionalizing, pluralizing the interactions among major actors on major issues um to get forward movement in in shaping the proposals that need to be acted on to manage this world okay now my understanding is that the indonesians had had you know high hopes of making progress on a, a number of global governance fronts uh, healthcare food security energy security and potentially debt relief particularly for uh, low and median income companies is is such countries. From, countries sorry is your perspective that such progress can still be made in the in the face of the geopolitical tensions um, that uh, you've talked about? Well, I think the Indonesians will insist on progress um, because they've put a lot of energy into it and a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I think the way this may fall. Not sure of the calendar, but I, the, I, have, I argued from the beginning that there's sort of two separate agendas here. One is the geopolitical agenda, right, um, which now can focus more than it might have if Putin were to have come on the China-U.S. and China-West relationship, China-world relationship, and this other agenda, which is the global governance agenda, which has to do with addressing s- systemic challenges. Mm-hmm. So the the way it could fall is that the geopolitical dynamics happen on arrival and during the first day of the two-day summit, and that there's a lot of news and heat and, and, and 
and attention to Xi Jinping and Biden in particular, and Zelensky's uh, virtual appearance sure. at the summit. Yeah. And then the second day or the second segment will deal in a more somber and serious and detailed way with these these very complex issues that have to do with climate change, global health, um, food security, energy transition, global debt, just mm-hmm. to name five. Um, and they, there have been working groups and ministerial groups all through the year on this that the, the Indonesians have pressed as hard as they can, and they will, will summarize the results of, of this work uh, at the end in a communique, which many will find dry to read, and, and that it will not realize all the ambitions that one might hope for. But what I can assure you is that if they could have gone further in terms of what's realistically feasible politically, they would. But there are real financial, fiscal, debt, and political constraints on what countries can do. And leaders aren't about to sign a document that that sounds very ambitious and hopeful when, in fact, they can't deliver on the issues that are in front of us. So this is the G20 is the mechanism by which you find the frontier of the feasible and among the major players. And if they could have gone further, they would, because why wouldn't you want to go further if you could? But if there are parliaments involved, and parliaments aren't sitting at the G20 table, and parliaments are the domestic grit that you know define the boundaries of what's of, of what's possible. And so you can't accuse the mechanism, as the critics of the G20 have always done, for not doing more, or the leaders who happen to be there for not doing more. That just sort of you know, sort of erases and ignores the fact that there are parliaments and publics behind these, mm-hmm. some of whom are feeling very constrained, most of whom are feeling very, almost all of them are feeling very constrained financially, if nothing else, and who can't be ambitious because they have unsatisfied systemic crises at home, which take precedence over the global ones. And so, I think the Indonesians have, from everything I've been able to tell, have done a masterful job of running this. I would expect India to do the same. They certainly seem ambitious if they're planning to hold 200 meetings. And and Brazil and now under Lula will be an exciting G20 to watch. He has global ambitions, which will come to the fore, I already have to a certain extent. And South Africa, so are the next G20 hosts. So I think this global governance, geopolitical, political, the fact is that the, that this is the first time that geopolitical issues of this dimension have received head of state attention at a G20 summit. That's a good thing because it shows that the G20 is a place to do that embedded in this larger network of middle powers and significant countries, not trying to resolve these things one-on-one. And it, that it's a very significant platform for pushing forward issues that then can be taken up in the UN and in the World Bank and the IMF and the New Development Bank and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and elsewhere. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic that the Indonesians will do all they can to deliver as much as is possible. Okay. Now, you, you kind of noted in, in passing that um, 
we've got a series of hosts coming from, uh, for lack of a better term, the global south. So Indonesia is this year. Um, India is next year, 2023. Brazil is the year after in 2024. And South Africa is uh, in 2025. Now, what's interesting is I've already we've already heard some from um, the G20 Sherpa for India, Sri Amitabh Kant, and he signaled, and this is kind of the big question and the last question, um, that in fact um, uh, that India proposes to put the sustainable development goals at the heart of India's G20 uh, year. Uh, what do you think of that? And particularly in the face of the United States seldom raising the issues of the SDGs um, and certainly not in, on the domestic side at all raising the issues of the SDGs. Well, I, th I think um, I think that the the Indians raising the SDGs is a great thing. It turns out that the Biden administration's national security strategy paper that came out, I think, on October 12th, if I'm not mistaken. Very recently, yes. Very recently, um, did mention the U.S. would recommit to the SDGs. And okay. there is some evidence that we've found um, that suggests that the U.S. has been doing things on particular specific SDGs, but not on the SDGs as a whole. Right. My own view is that the SDGs do provide a framework, a very useful framework of integrating and relating the global systemic challenges that face us into a whole and that into a W-H-O-L-E, <laughs> H-O-L-E. And that... Um, that this is a very useful framework for a, a platform like the G20 to, to, to actually frame the public conversation about how, about envisioning the future for 2030 and beyond and realizing how important it is to anticipate what the world will look like in these 17 different domains as we go forward and to have the kind of targets and indicators and measures to monitor and evaluate progress as countries go forward in developing their health systems to, to deal with global health, for example, making the energy transition that's necessary for the world to be um, stable in terms of climate change by 2050, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that, so that I see the SDGs as being a very useful uh, vocabulary, if you like, or discourse or framework for the policy conversation that can go forward. So the fact that it means something about to the global South and that the global South hosts are bringing it up, I think I would counsel them to be very careful to not let it be seen as, as a, an agenda for the global South, but rather an agenda for the globe and for every country on the globe, including the advanced countries. Mm -hmm. And that's the key thing. Unless there is an understanding of that and a commitment on the part of the United States, Europe, China, Russia, etc., um, all the all the major countries, um, Japan, the UK, Australia, Canada, the, as well as the developing countries, and, and the EU, I think, as an entity could be helpful on this, is pushing it as well. 
is that unless it's seen as a global agenda, unless it's the industrial countries are committed to it for themselves in terms of realizing their own transformational changes that are necessary for social inclusion and and, and planetary balance um, and, and widespread uh, uh, safeguards against pandemics, unless they realize that, that this is that this needs action now to be somewhere in 2030, which is more stable than it is in 2022, you won't get the kind of compelling motive motivation for action that's necessary in order to realize the goals themselves. So, which are essential, not just, you know, desirable. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I welcome this. I just would caution the global South not to, to really make sure they spend effort engaging and, using a vocabulary that includes the advanced countries and having advanced country voices in the conversation and not let it become a development agenda for the global south that that just limits it to it's this is a strategic agenda about survival not a do good agenda for global cooperation for development and so with the mdgs and the idgs the millennium development goals and the international development goals that came before them came out of the development cooperation um professional um uh, uh stream work stream of between governments now this is a this is a this is a uh, multi-ministerial domestic um integrated horizontal uh strategic approach to survival that's embodied in the SDGs. And, and I think that's the way the, the Indians, Brazilians, and South Africans should frame it. Well, I want to thank you, Colin, for um, taking us through uh, this very large uh, frame uh, for um, uh, global development uh, and, uh, of course, the uh, global summitry process and and uh, really appreciate your insights into um, not only the Indonesian G20 summit, which is on November 15th, 16th, but on the follow-up uh, Global South hosting um, uh, uh, experience, uh, experiences and hosting years uh, that follow on. So thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure, Alan. Thank you.